All right, open your Bibles to Mark 6. Between 1930 and 1936, Americans living in the Great Plains experienced what's called the Dust Bowl, a period of drought that was exacerbated by over-cultivation and improper land management. Actually, my grandfather was uh, worked for the Agriculture Department. Uh, he lived in um, this part of the country during this time, or part of this time, uh, and I, I never knew my grandfather. This is my dad's dad, but uh, he, he was involved in helping teach people how to do proper land management uh, and, and helping to end the Dust Bowl. The worst of it included a storm they called Black Sunday, April 14th, 1935. The storm path was, can you imagine, about a thousand miles long. The day that began clear and warm and windless brought a black dust uh, that was so awful it blocked out the sunlight almost completely. It was so dark in places that people had trouble seeing anything directly in front of them. Uh, singer Woody Guthrie. This is probably the only time I'm ever going to quote him <laughs> in church. He sang of this experience. He was 22 years old at the time. We saw outside our window where wheat fields they had grown. It was now a rippling ocean of dust the wind had blown. It covered up our fences. It covered up our barns. It covered up our tractors in this wild and dusty storm. We loaded our jalopies and piled our families in. We rattled down that highway to never come back again. In total, the Dust Bowl left more than 2 million Americans homeless, 7,000 dead of what's called dust pneumonia. Well, they do things on a grander scale in China. It's called the Great Famine, a period between 1959 and 1961. The famine was a direct result of Chairman Mao Zedong's communist planned economy. Zedong and other Chinese leaders instituted what's called the Great Leap Forward which intended to bring China into the modern world. Farmers were ordered to produce iron and steel instead of crops. Bird populations were considered pests and were partially wiped out. The years of famine were called, the, they called them the three years of difficulties. The subject is actually taboo in China. You don't speak of it. Yang Jisheng wrote a book called Tombstone, detailing the savagery of the time and how the reforms by the communists were the, was the cause of so much death. In central Henan province, one in eight died of starvation. One in eight. Can you imagine? All told, the famine resulted in the deaths of more than 10 million people. And you thought the Dust Bowl was bad. Ken Burns ought to do a show about that. Yang's book is banned in China, by the way. No surprise. Starvation is terrible. I was reading this week of the symptoms that come along with starvation, and I won't share them with you, but suffice to say, it is a painful, inhumane way to die, and no one should have to go through it. How awful, then, that we blanch at the subject of starvation and human suffering, but we think little to nothing of the spiritual agony that most people are in right now, in our community, our neighborhoods, some of whom are our friends.
In our country, the combined deaths, irrespective of the cause, are between eight and 9,000 every month. I'm sorry, every day. Eight to 9,000 Americans die every day in the month of February. Overall, we lose about 7,700 people a day. It goes down in the summer, by the way. Fewer people die in the summer than in the winter. How many of them do not know the Lord Jesus? Have you ever thought about that? That today, nearly 8,000 people are going to die, most of whom will not know Jesus Christ. How many of them will live their lives in one of the freest societies in terms of religion and face eternity lost? Taking a step back from that, even though Christianity is nearly everywhere in our country, you just can't get away from it, even in Utah, which is the least evangelized state in our union, even with Christianity nearly everywhere, its influence is actually waning. <clears throat> the Pew Research Center released data that 65% of American self-professed to be Christians, and that's the broadest sense of the word here, 65% said they were Christians in 2019. But that number was down 12% from the previous decade. Two years later, in 2021, that number was 63%, down 2% in just two years. I want you to think about how many people that actually represents. That's like everyone living in Nebraska, Kansas, Delaware, and South Dakota self-reporting that they are no longer Christians. That would be there's no Christian in any of those states at all. And that's just in two years. How many people we lost to Christianity. It's worse when you think about how it works over a 14-year period. If you take it in a 14-year period, the 65% down 12% figure I gave you earlier, it's like the entire state of California declaring they're no longer Christian, which when you think about it. But in a solemn sense, that's pretty bad. That over the last 15 years, 40-some million Americans said we're not Christians more than the unbelievers we had before. That's not the only problem facing our country spiritually. In 2020, the Barna Research Group released data indicating that among people who attend an evangelical church, that would be a church like ours, we would be considered an evangelical church. That among people who attend an evangelical church, only 33% believe that confessing sin and accepting Jesus as Savior will result in going to heaven when after one dies. In other words, in the evangelical churches, and we're a small number in, in comparison to all the churches in America, only one-third are actually evangelical. At least 41% of people in evangelical churches believe that doing good works will get you to heaven. 41% of people in evangelical churches, imagine this, believe in good works, salvation. And astonishingly, 63% do not believe the Bible is critical to your faith and doctrine. Well, I'll just tell you, that sounds pretty bad. And, and let me tell you why that's the case. This is what I think. Last May... The Christian Post reported that 51% of pastors in evangelical churches 
only 51% hold the biblical worldview. Do you want to know why there are so many people in evangelical churches who don't believe the gospel? It's because half of our pastors don't believe the gospel. Half. Worse, only 37% even take a biblical worldview into their sermons. Only 48% of pastor of Baptist churches believe in biblical theism. That would be our position. And by the way, churches really like ours, calling ourselves, we'd be something like a fundamental church, or you'd say maybe a Southern Baptist church. They have a much higher percentage, but it's still below 80%. So in churches like ours, 20 pastors out of 100 do not hold a biblical worldview. And that just blows my mind. How is anyone supposed to worship God, follow Jesus, and help each other in the process if his own pastor doesn't believe the Bible? And there's a reason why our country is falling apart morally and ethically and spiritually. And it's not because Satan has come up with a new plan. He's just figured it out. It was a riddle, and for 2,000 years, he's been working on this riddle, but now he's figured it out. It's not because the pagans in our world have gotten more pagan. It's because Christians and Christianity, people are falling away from truth because the truth isn't being preached. Those who are tasked with feeding the flock of God which he purchased with his own blood, have been failing in their task. By the way, the larger your church, the more likely it is that your pastor does not hold to a biblical worldview. Isn't that interesting? Of professing evangelicals, once the church eclipses 250 people sitting in the congregation, the pastors with a high view of scripture drops to around 15%. So the larger the church, the better chance you have of getting a pastor who does not believe the Bible. A few years ago, I was sitting in a church in uh, Orlando, Florida, First Baptist Church of Orlando. Actually, the Cobles were with Becky and me. We were sitting there in this church on a Sunday morning, uh, wanting to worship God together after some chants uh, that we chanted a little bit. Um, there was no prayer offered. Um, the man got up and the pastor got up and preached on a word. He said this was his word for the year. I can't remember what it was. It was something like realism or relevance or future or I, I just remember it was just a word. It wasn't even necessarily a Bible word. He gave his entire sermon based on this word. And it was a word that he was just said. I was writing words on a piece of paper and I, I wrote some words and I was just thinking, what, what word should be our guide for the year? This is how he's actually conjuring up what he's supposed to preach on. By the way, there were thousands of people in this, in this building with us. And I am sitting there just going, you have got to be kidding me. And, and we did not hear a prayer other than the chant we did for the offering. We were all supposed to put our hands out like this. Do you all remember this? We were supposed to put our hands out like this, and we were supposed to chant. That was our prayer for the offering. And after the chant was over, they took the offering, and then we got through the sermon. Still no prayer. No prayer at all. Not one prayer until the end of the sermon, and as soon as we closed the sermon, I heard somebody begin to pray, and I thought, let's get out of here. Let's get out of this building. I don't want to have anything to do with this anymore. 
And I just sit there and think, folks, that's one of the largest Baptist churches in Orlando, Florida. And there are a lot of people there. And they all say that they're professing Christians. And this is where you get information like what I just gave you in places like that. And what I am telling you is this. People are starving spiritually. They're starving. And there's no one to feed them. This is exactly the situation Jesus faced in his own earthly ministry. The people were religious. There was a lot of religion in, in the Holy Land. There were synagogues everywhere, a temple in Jerusalem. The majority of the population considered them to be Old Testament type saints. The religious leaders were respected and followed by the people. But the people were starving. They were hungry. And they were not being fed. And this is one reason why Jesus is so important. Ladies and gentlemen, he cares about the spiritually hungry. And there are a lot of hungry people. And he desires to feed them with spiritual food. Would you consider with me first? The Lord cares for the spiritually hungry. He places their needs above his own. It says here in verse 30, the apostles, they had been sent out by Jesus to go into the villages around and preach a gospel. They, they gathered themselves and they told him all the things that they had done and what they had taught. He said to them, come now apart to a desert place and rest. You can imagine how tiring this must have been. All the work they were doing, they departed into a desert place by a ship. And then the people saw them departing. And many knew him and ran out of all the cities and outwent them and came together to him. So you see the disciples are needing rest from the exhaustion of ministry. And so the story now is picking up from the end of the last section. They return from their mission. They relate to Jesus all they've done. The emphasis is on healing and exorcism and on preaching the gospel. And so Jesus says to them, all right, it's time for rest. Come apart. And let's rest a while. And their ministry have brought together a large crowd of people. So you, you, while they're physically exhausted from ministry, the result of their ministry was this large crowd of people. And, and it was so many that the current situation, verse 31 says, they didn't even have time to eat. They were serving people so much. Spiritual ministry can be physically exhausting. And their plan now is to get away from the crowd by getting into a boat because people can't follow them out on water. They get into a boat, they cross the lake to get away from the crowds. And, but their rest would have to wait because what you find then is people are on the shore and you can almost get this sense. I mean, everybody knew who lived around that lake how shipping lanes were, how the boats went, and, and they saw the direction the boat was going. And what happened was this allowed them to figure out where the disciples and Jesus were headed. And apparently now the crowd decides... We can outrun him to that port. If we leave now, we can be there before he gets there. And so they do. And it says they outran them. They outwent them. So this crowd of people now, you know, Jesus and the disciples want a little rest. They get in their boat, being across over the lake. They get there, and guess who's waiting for them? The big crowd of people. We still haven't had time to rest. It's like you can see Peter and and Bartholomew, come push back, push back, quick, quick. You know, row the other direction. Go somewhere else. Let's get away from the crowd. Jesus, he sees the need of these people. And he puts their need ahead of his own. That's how Jesus is. He gets out of the boat. 
And he sees the crowd that forms, and he determines that he will help them. And you see, friends, it's because he loves people. You look at verse 34, Jesus, when he came out, he saw much people and was moved with compassion. He loved them because there was a sheep not having a shepherd. Jesus' reaction to the world is love, and that's still true. He sees our world, and he says, these are people without a shepherd. Let me tell you something. I don't know if you read the news, but, but as I read the news, what strikes me is how lost people are. You, you, there's this swimmer from the University of Pennsylvania. He himself is so confused. He has been destroyed by Satan. And he now claims that he is a woman when, he, when he's not a woman. And he, he's in the locker room changing with these girls on the women's swim team. And, and I read the story and... And do you know, usually you read a story and you read the good side and the bad side. You know, most modern news stories, it's the bad side and the worst side. There's no good side. There's no biblical answer at all. It used to be when I was a boy, you could pick up your Sunday paper. Some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. And there'd be a sermon in the paper written by some Christian pastor. And it would have the gospel in the sermon. Well, that's gone. That's not anymore. And Jesus is looking at people in our culture, and he feels it in his gut. That's the emotion. The term here means he became emotional. He has now empathy for these people. His empathy is aroused. And I look at our, our nation and all the problems affecting our nation with immigration problems and economic problems and sickness and disease and politics and elitism and, and, and entertainment and all that's going on here. The, the satanic worship that happened last Sunday at the Grammys in this kind of hypersexualized Satan worship time. And you see that. And how does your heart respond? I'll tell you how Jesus responds. He looks at people like that and he has empathy for them. Because they're lost. They're starving spiritually. They were sheep with no shepherd. There's no one to give them the spiritual food, the grass that they need to live. There's no one to take them to the spiritual waters to drink. And at this moment, because Jesus is so tired, the people around him, his disciples, are so tired, but the problems are so great, their needs come first. And even though he's exhausted, and they're exhausted, he says, I'm now, I'm going to minister to these people. And friends, this is how we must see our culture. This is how we must see our community. We are so blessed here at our church. And, I, and I'm referring to people other than myself here when I say this. We are blessed with good teaching. We have some good teachers here. And God-honoring music and great spiritual fellowship here. And I read the testimonies that you write. Uh, on Slack, and I hear the testimonies that you speak to each other, and I'm just going to tell you, my heart rejoices. It's unusual. It's, it's not normal. 
I sometimes feel like those beggars in the Old Testament who, who are, remember the, the ones who had leprosy and, and the city was surrounded and, and they said, you know, we're going to die here of starvation. If we go out to the enemy, Midianites or whatever, Menon, or the Mennonites, whoever's, whoever's surrounding, it wasn't the Mennonites. But the Midianites, right, they're surrounding the, the city. We're going to go out there, and, you know, if we die, we die. We're going to die anyway. We die, we die. And they get out there, and they find out that God had, had scared these people so much that they had left all their food behind. And, and basically, now you have these three lepers out there just eating all this food. And they eat till they're sick. And they're just, and then they go, we feel guilty. Here are all these people starving inside the city. And, and you know, we, we're just having a great time eating all this food. And they decide, you know, we're going we're gonna to go inside and tell people about what God has done. We feast here at God's bounty. We want for nothing spiritually. Our children are fed spiritual food here with the Sunday school classes and Kids for Truth and junior church and camp ministry that we get to go to and missions trips and Christian groups that come in and all, all of this. There are people, friends, all around our church starving and we feast at God's bounty. Well, Jesus cares for the spiritually hungry. Do you care? Because the world, this is point number two, the world is hungry for spiritual food. And I think the physical needs here in this story are analogous for man's spiritual condition. I, I think that John's gospel makes that clear. Mark will make a similar, similar application later, not immediately, but later on this story. But I think the feeding of the 5,000 was just not to feed them. It was to actually show them a spiritual truth. And I think physical needs are analogous to man's spiritual condition. It says the day was ended. Then the disciples said, you know, we're out in the desert. The time is past. In other words, it's, it's late in the day. Send these people away that they can go in the country roundabout to the villages and buy themselves bread. They have nothing to eat. So the disciples bring attention to a new problem. Jesus has been teaching all day. Do you, do you know, by the way, can I stop and just interject something that occurred to me this week? The little boy who they bring, who has the five loaves and two fish, how much did he have before this? Because he's eaten something, right? I mean, he's the one who brought his sack lunch. So I'm thinking five loaves and two fish is, all, is what he had left over from his lunch. Because, because it's the end of the day. He had to have eaten something. I mean, what child would have said, you know what? No, I'm just not going to eat. I'm just going to let that sit. Maybe someone else will need it. I, I'll just let that go. Nobody's going to do that. So I think five loaves and two fish is more like seven loaves and five fish is what I think probably it really was originally. It's all you have left for the five loaves and two fish. These people uh, have a logistical problem. The disciples have a solution Send the people into the neighboring villages so they can buy and eat. And this is becoming increasingly important because he says that the people have nothing to eat. So Jesus now sets up the situation to reveal a spiritual truth, that the physical needs of people are an analogy to their spiritual needs. This is just like the woman at the well. The disciples go off to find food because everybody's hungry. 
Jesus asks the woman for water. He then enters into a conversation that leads her to salvation. And the disciples come back and Jesus says, I have meat to eat that you don't know about. And they said, did somebody bring him some food? They're thinking physical. Jesus is thinking spiritual. And the problem is, is that no one else can feed them. There is no one other. And so he answered verse 37 and said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, there's no way. We don't have enough money. Judas, how much have we got in the bag? We don't have enough money. But if we had 200 penny worth of bread, 200 days of work, how much do you make in uh, two-thirds of your calendar year? Well, let's just say half. If you took all that money that you business people, you that are active in business, that you make in a calendar year, you take all that money, cut it in half. That's, he says, even if we had that much money, we wouldn't be able to feed all these people. We can't do that. They say, we could go buy food and bring it here, but there's not enough money. And they acknowledge their meager food supply is too little to suffice. And the point here is the heart of the matter. Jesus is the only one who can fix the problem. And ladies and gentlemen, the world is starving and Jesus is He's the banquet hall. He's the bread of life. He's the one who feeds people spiritual food. And that's what they need. The application here is really quite wonderful. Jesus alone can fix the problems of the human heart, and he badly wants to do that. He's the one who saves marriages. He's the one who can actually bring loved ones to himself Imagine how your world would change if your mom got saved or your dad got saved or a brother, sister, or a child in your family. He desires to help you overcome the addictions that you're struggling with. He, he would love to help you get rid of your guilt. I saw a meme this week. It was a man with a giant backpack and underneath it said, I'm headed to church today. I thought, how many people drag in these huge backpacks of guilt of all the sins they've done, and instead of being relieved of that at church, they leave holding on to that backpack. Friend, here we teach all our sins have been atoned. There's no sin, no stain on the pages of tomorrow. You come to Christ, and you find that he covers every sin with his blood. And I need nothing more. And that's why the songwriter said, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I, I don't have to trust in anything else. I don't have to go anywhere else. I don't have to work for this. We were joking before the last hour on, on a rainy day, we've noticed. I'm here early enough that uh, um, there are very few people, if anyone here, when I arrive. Sometimes uh, some of our older saints beat me here. Uh, but I'm usually here pretty early. And I get here and lights are being turned on or Pastor Joe maybe has already turned all the lights on. And and uh, I'm standing by the door. And if it's a rainy day, if it's a, like today, a nice rainy day, you just go, boy, if I were in a workspace church, probably be pretty full, right? Because you go on a rainy day and it's a workspace church, you're really getting to heaven. But in a grace-based church, I'm just happy anybody shows up. <laughs> you know, I don't have to go today. I'm still going to heaven. You know, I mean, I probably should, but I don't have to. So, oh, but my and my bed feels so good. 
right? I mean, that's true. But you don't have to live with guilt. He wants your children to grow up to love him and serve him. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can solve the crisis. He loves people and the people need him. So what does he do? He desires to feed them spiritual food. This is point number three. You see what he does when he gets off the ship and he sees the needs of the people. You see, they need him. They need Jesus. And he began to teach them many things. This is what Jesus does. He gets off the boat. He's been teaching them here. He gets on the boat. He goes across. He gets off the boat. They're back. And he teaches them. And he teaches them all day. And you thought we had long-winded guest preachers. We've had preachers. I tell them, Becky will say, do you tell them the time? I told them the time. It doesn't matter, you know. They think this is the most important sermon ever, especially the younger evangelists. They're so excited to preach. They blast through the time I told them, and then afterwards, sorry, Pastor. Well, what are you going to say now? You know, it's better to ask forgiveness, I guess, than permission. That's what they're thinking. Well, yeah, we'll see you in three or four years. Now, Jesus is going to teach all day. And he, he just has such compassion on these people. So he teaches them out, out, of, out of the Old Testament about himself over and over again all day long. They need his words more than they need their food. Man doesn't live by bread alone. That's what God knows. That's what we still don't fully grasp. Man, does, man needs the revelation of God. Listen, we don't need government solving all our problems. We need Jesus Christ. It's great to have good government. We need Jesus. We don't need more education in homes to lift people out of poverty. It would be great if people were out of poverty. But what people need is Jesus. We don't need churches pastored by men who teach good platitudes and moral living. All of that's good. But what people need is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And without that, they starve to death. They die in their sins, believing because they went to a church that claimed to be Christian, evangelical, Baptist, whatever. The pastor claimed to be all of those things. They went there Sunday after Sunday. They sang in the choir and never did they hear the good news that Jesus saves. And that's what people need. More than anything else, they need him. He's the shepherd. This is what the shepherd does. The shepherd cares for his flock. He protects the sheep. He guides the sheep. And he brings them to food and to water. What a blessing for you to be able to say in your hour of need, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. David just got back from Paris Island. You know, in this room, David, you and I are the only ones who've been there in this capacity. So you'll understand more than anybody. I went to bed every night and I quoted to myself Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And if you've ever been in a time of crisis, a time of difficulty, and you can quote those words for yourself, the blessing is overwhelming. 
And I see people in our society, their lives broken by their sin, and they have no idea there is a shepherd right here who will feed you and guide you and help you. He'll give you all of this if you'll come to him. The food that Jesus provides. Oh, it's good. But as he says in John, it only lasts for a day. You need the meat that doesn't perish. You came and you ate my bread that I gave you, and now you want more of it. Moses gave your father's bread in the wilderness. Where, where are they? Where are all those people who ate manna today? Every single one of them, even the good ones, Joshua and Caleb, they're gone. They're dead. That meat perishes. I am the bread of life. Come eat my body and drink my blood. That sounds so weird and awful and gross, but, but he made it clear while he was saying that. He says, come believe in me. Come believe in me. Turn to me with all your heart and believe in me. And I think the miracle here, and I purposely avoided the miracle part, the miracle is not really the part of the message. You, you all know the feeding of the 5,000, right? He takes the loaves and the fish. He breaks it all up. He has everybody sit down in ranks. I didn't even read that part. If you noticed as I was reading, I just skipped that over that. It's, it's important because it's in God's word, but it's not the point of the, of the message. What Jesus is actually doing here in breaking up this bread from this little boy and, and breaking up the little fish, all of that is, is good. And what he's doing in feeding those people is not just to meet their physical needs. He is now doing something. He is saying, I want you to see something about me in this picture. Here we have an illusion. This is letter B. The food he provides alludes to the spiritual provision for them. And so he sets them down and he breaks the bread after he prays for it. And he, and he gives it to them and they eat and they're filled. And the story demonstrates Jesus' ability to provide for spiritually needy people. And John's gospel explains that. This Jesus, he is the meat that never perishes. You eat, I eat the meat at lunch and dinner and breakfast. We eat snack time, middle of the night time, whenever you eat. You're eating food that goes away. The whole point is that Jesus feeds spiritually hungry people. The entire story here is filled with these spiritual illusions. The bread and the fish are broken. I, I, there's, there's a reason why he prayed and then broke the bread, because his body was broken for us. That's the way the Bible talks about his body. It was broken for us. And, and I don't think it's unfair or, or a violation of the way I interpret Scripture to see that here. He's breaking that bread. He's breaking the fish. And he's distributing. And this is his body broken for us. The body that's broken so that we can eat of his body and drink of his blood that we can believe in him. And he's almost, we're almost seeing a foretaste of what's coming when his body will be broken on a cross. The prayer of thanksgiving is made. And this is why we pray. We come to God on the basis of Jesus' own name in which we trust. We, we have no comprehension in our culture how important names are in the ancient world. But we come to the Father in Jesus' own name. By your name. 
That's the only basis on which we can come. This is why I end my prayers in the name of Jesus or in Jesus' name or for his sake. It's not just something to say. It is, it is what I believe to be true, that I can come boldly to the throne of grace where I can find help and, and mercy and grace in time of need. I come there in the name of Jesus. There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. It is the name of Jesus. It is that name that I declare and I confess and I believe and I trust in him alone. And that's the one who feeds me spiritual food. He gives it to me and I can eat it. And so I thank the Lord. The food that I eat physically is just a metaphor for the food I eat spiritually. And so I thank him for it. Long ago, I've stopped praying, bless this food to my body. I'm not entirely sure what that means. Maybe you say that. I, I don't want to throw stones at you. I don't because I'm not sure what that means. I don't know how the food's going to bless my body. I guess it'll make me healthier. <laughs> you should see what I'm eating. I'm not sure that's true. And I'm not sure the Lord wants to uh, you know, put his imprimatur, his imprimatur, his stamp of approval, and saying, yes, I'm going to bless this ice cream to your body. No. No, I'm saying thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for feeding me the bread of life. Do you see who's distributing the food? It's the disciples. Isn't this what they do? Isn't this what the preacher does? We who bear the apostolic responsibility. I'm not an apostle, but I have apostolic responsibility for the Great Commission to spread the good news of Jesus. We who bear that responsibility. Is this not the work of God's servants? Are these shepherds in training? Right? He's the great shepherd of the sheep. We're under shepherds. And we distribute the food. This is why I mentioned all those pastors who I think are genuinely failing in their task. I, I recently heard a sermon by a pastor at a time when you would expect the gospel to be spoken and the gospel was absent. And as I was walking through to shake his hand, uh, I was at an actual service this way. I actually thought of saying to him, so tell me, what's it like to be a dog that can't bark? That's a reference from the Old Testament of the, the shepherds of Israel. They're like dogs who can't bark out the warning. I thought that might be a little rude, so I didn't say it. I really wanted to, though. You can see I've matured, right? Because younger me would have definitely said it. I, it was really close to saying it. I mean, it was... I don't know. It may not make you mad. It makes me really, really angry. When I hear a man get up and, and talk about good moral things, being good and not sharing the gospel because he's damning people's souls. It makes Jesus angry too, by the way. That's why Jesus looks around at people. Is it not good to do, is it not right to do good on the Sabbath day? To heal? And when they didn't say a word, it says Jesus looked about them with anger. I know that anger. It makes me mad in my heart. How dare you not fulfill your task? I know it's hard. Sometimes it's difficult to share the gospel with people. Sometimes it's very hard, especially in times of grief, 
to bring people to the gospel because the gospel contains bad news for a lot of people. You're on your way to hell. Your loved ones are on their way to hell. That's, that's a hard thing to say. And so we chicken out. We get cowardly. It's hard to stand up. But do you know something? When you see the lion coming over the wall or the wolf coming over the wall and you're the shepherd, that's your job. That's your obligation. The people eaten are satisfied. Isn't this what the gospel does? I don't know about you. I, I preach to you. People don't preach to me very often unless I'm listening to something online or I don't hear a lot of sermons. So I, I consume spiritual food differently than you do. I only get it by reading. I read and read and read. And you know what I find? It just restores my soul. I was speaking to a young lady this week who is newly saved in the last few years, and we were just talking about how God's word just feeds us. Jesus took that and he, and he gave that food out and they were all filled. And this is what it does. It just satisfies our souls. And do you, do you realize the last little portion here? Why, why do you think the story, if there are all these illusions here, and if the story is not about the feeding itself, but about a spiritual story that's kind of greater and more important, why do you think the little end of the story is so cool? Because they gather up a whole bunch of leftovers. What do they do with them? Do you make little baggies for people on your way on your way home? Be sure to pick up. Okay, we're gonna have some announcements now. Announcement time. Jesus will be back to preach in just a moment. We've got some announcements. Take up your baggies on your way home. You have some bread and fish for lunch tomorrow. Do you think that was going on? Why, why that is that there? Because I think it shows us something about God's truth. There's plenty for everyone. There's room at the cross for everyone who lives across the street. For everyone who's going to live behind the church, there's room at the cross for the people who live down the street here and down the street there who live in the 27519 zip code and all the other ones that are around us. And all over this globe, there's plenty of gospel to go around. There's plenty of food. And if we shared the gospel with every soul in this world, we'd still have leftovers. Because where sin abounds, grace superabounds. Cannot others come and dine with Christ? The world is spiritually starving, and Jesus has the food with which to feed everyone. How should we think about this truth? Well, I've got three applications, and I'm done. Number one, the world. To the world, we must say, come and dine. It's time that God's church reestablishes this truth, that to the whole world, we say, here is where you must eat. We cannot allow these false teachers to win the day. We must fight them. I was thinking of of a Churchill. I'm going to fight them in the streets. I'm going to fight them in the country, in the fields, wherever they are, you know, and, and I'm not talking about Nazi Germany now. I'm talking about false teachers. I'm going to fight them everywhere and tell them, come to the world, come and dine. No reason for anyone to starve spiritually. We cannot keep what we have to ourselves. My neighbor needs this. My coworker needs this. My loved ones need this truth. Everyone needs the gospel. And we cannot change the food, number two, to make it more palatable to the hungry. You know, if you give children the chance, they'll eat all their Halloween candy in one, one hour, right? I mean, you'll walk into the room and all the wrappers are just on the floor and they have their head over the trash bag, bucket because they're sick. I mean, children love candy. A child will probably eat a cookie over a healthy meal. I mean, very few children are out there saying, oh, mom. 
please, instead of making cake tonight, just make more broccoli. Would you do that? I mean, I would love that. A little more cauliflower, Mom. Less cake, more cauliflower. I don't think that's... You, you, don't, you don't see cauliflower stores popping up, right? I mean, instead of where the cookie shop was, we have the vegetable shop where you get all the vegetables. So you just, all the ones you want to eat and buy all the dips here. And you'd, you'd probably that would be good. We don't have that. That doesn't, I mean, maybe in really crazy places, but they don't, they don't make it. Children will eat candy. And so people will eat spiritual candy. You give them spiritual candy. You entertain them. You know, the church is not a comedy club. It's not a theater. It's not a place of entertainment. It's a place for people to hear the good news that Jesus says. And then third, we cannot become so insular that we neglect the spiritual need of others. Today, our church is 20 years old. How about that? Praise God. There were a few times in the first year, I wasn't sure we were going to get to year two, <laughs> much less 20 years. 20 years old. And, and I think in those 20 years, the blessings of our church is one of which is we have become kind of insular. If you look around, many of the faces you see are the same faces you've seen for 15 years, 10 years, five years, right? Where are the new faces? We can't let ourselves become so insular that we neglect the needs of others. This is the biggest problem in churches like ours. We become so fat on truth that we fail to use its calories as fuel for gospel ministry. We stop loving people and strangers become strange to us. We have to see every new visitor who moves into our neighborhoods or visits our church as people who need to come and eat for the very first time or maybe uh, eat for the first time in a long time. And, and let me tell you, it doesn't matter if they sit in your spot it doesn't matter if they're difficult to work with. It doesn't matter if they come with ideas that make you uncomfortable. We have to export our food supply to areas of great starvation. When I was a maybe early college, there was a group of singers, musicians, and Hollywood stars that got together to try to stop starvation in Africa. Some of you remember that. They they sang, they had a song that they sang, and they had every single singer you can imagine who was popular at the time singing a phrase of the song, and then they clipped to another singer, and he'd sing a phrase, and it was it was strange and weird, but they all wanted to sing it. And they were all raising money to send food to Africa. And you look at something like that and you say, Man, that's awesome. Because there were a lot of starving people in Africa at the time, particularly there had been a great famine in Ethiopia. And, and people were starving to death. And they, these people were saying, this just shouldn't happen in the modern world. So they were going to raise all this money up, and we're going to get all this food up, and we're going to help the starving people in the world. And yet I think to ourselves, friends, there, there's a much greater starvation taking place, and it's global, and it's spiritual starvation, and we have to do it. We're the stars. We're God's stars to take this globally. And this is why we do missions, and this is why we preach the gospel here, and this is why we do what we do here, so that we can say to people, come and eat. The food is here. And if you come here, you will be able to dine on some of the best food available because it is the very words of God. Let's pray. Father, without your help, this has been a meaningless exercise. So right now we ask you to please help us.
In the last few Sundays, Lord, the emphasis has been on a reclaiming our mission as your followers, to rethink it and reclaim it, to recommit ourselves to the truth that you alone are the solution for mankind's problems. So right now I ask you, dear Lord, to, in, to work in each of our hearts this way, if it be your will, to help us say, I will be one who will help feed others spiritually. I'm going to bring this to my home. I'm going to bring this to my community. I'm going to bring this to my loved ones and my family. I'm going to bring this everywhere I go. And I'm going to encourage people to come and feast at your table and to come eat of the great shepherd's food because he alone can feed his flock. And help me as a pastor, Lord, help Pastor Joe to be the under-shepherds, to share this truth formally with as many as we can, as long as we have strength. Before I finish praying, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand today. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to sit for a moment and rethink what's my task, what's my role in all this. Maybe you are a teacher and your role is to teach, but maybe your role is different. Maybe your role in this great mobilization to feed the spiritually starving of the world, maybe your role is completely different. It may be even quite mundane. The question is, are you doing it? So in these moments of invitation, go to the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, what's my role? Help me to do it with all my might. Father, please do this work in our church and many others. For all the faithful men out there, and there are many, thank you for them. Help us to see them not as competitors, but as co-workers. Help us, Lord, not to over-apply a misunderstanding of separation against gospel preachers that we tend to fight other saints instead of Satan. He's the enemy. Help us to fight him. And help us, Lord, in all things to stand for truth. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Stand to your feet. The pianist will play a hymn of invitation. Go to the Lord. Lord, what's my role? How can I do?